And I actually hear that Donald Trump, outside of all the Nazism and racism, is a nice guy. What does that mean? I mean, <laughs> Hitler was probably nice. I mean, that's the thing. I like, thought Hitler was a dick, honestly. No, it doesn't seem like it. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my two very best friends, Jason in D.C. Evening. And Trisha in L.A. Hello. Hi. Guys, I want to start off with, I got to my door today, and I found a package with the return address being Trisha in L.A., (laughs) and I... I haven't opened it yet, and I thought it'd be fun to do right now. Oh, so, fun. What is it? There you sure is... you don't want to wait for the live um, episode? I can't. I'm not waiting two weeks. That was, so, my, that was my integrated plug. I, I, well, we'll get to that. I got a card that says, oh, Trisha. <laughs> and I'm not reading it. Sorry, everybody. And what is this? I got a book. What is this? I thought since you enjoyed uh, the book that he did on the the green, remember that green um, comic? Oh, that was my recommendation like three months ago. Oh, this yeah, is another one of his. Guy, yeah, it's one of his. Um, it's it's the one we gave him a major award, and you know he's now just. I think he just won the Pulitzer. So now this book is all the rage. So this book is uh, it's by Jean Luen Yang. It's called mm-hmm. Boxers and Saints, and it's very heavy. It's very, very heavy. It looks great. I'm going to check this out. Hopefully this, out. Will be, this will be for my sure. meeting recommendation next time. Thank you very much. Yes. That was impressive. It was extremely That's... impressive. And I cannot believe Jason's did not arrive. Oh, Jason got oh. one too. Oh. Oh, <laughs> did I ruin the surprise? The I never go in the office for packages because I never get any. Oh. Um, so this is awkward. Should we get you gifts now? Because no, 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 no. It was totally, you know how, you know how I do with gifts. If I think of it, I see something, I think you might like it. I send it to you. You know what? I, I just want to say, I, uh, you, as you both know, I don't believe in gift giving or gift receiving usually. And I know I have yet to get a gift from you in the last few years. Are you going to send that book back to her, Chris? Return to sender? Oh, no, I'll keep the book. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you said you wanted to read more, so. Okay, so I feel like I want to expose myself for the moment and tell you what I did today, which is so bad. Go for it. So last night, I get, received an email from our boss, my boss. So the email said that there had been a bomb threat for, for the red line. So I actually got up this morning and I took a lift. Only because you know what I don't know if you, the subway in LA is anxiety anxiety producing. It's just well, I mean the whole thing could like an earthquake could knock the whole thing on you at any moment. Yeah, and you know the people on it, and so I thought I woke up this morning and I actually examined my mental health that was going to happen at the end of the day. I was like I thought to myself, okay, do you want to stress about this thing, or just proactively get on this Uber or Lyft and get the hell out of Dodge and then deal with the repercussions of that tomorrow because you can't keep doing this every day, right? Mm-hmm. So I took the lift in. It was, you know, it was fine. And then I took the red line home. <laughs> I really went down into the train. I was like, okay, you know what? If I'm going to go, I'm going to go. So 
I'm, what kind of attitude you, is that? You I mean, you know what? Information you know, that you might be in danger, but you were just like, well, fuck it. What? You know what? But I had to think about this. I mean, let's. I mean, let's think about how many bomb threats probably come in. I mean, this was the first time they actually let us know. So I think it did impact traffic because there weren't a lot of people on the subway. But I thought about other people who live in places where things are always happening. I mean, are you supposed to stop your life? Like, I really did contemplate that after I took the um, the lift in. I was like, wait a minute, am I going to be taking lift into work every day? Like, what am I supposed to do about this? You know, uh, and so I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to have to <laughs> bite the bullet. Wow. I was, it was a nervy ride home. I looked at everyone twice. <laughs> I really, I was checking everything. I was just not very comfortable, but I did it anyway. And I don't know. I, I thought it was, I thought I was a little bit crazy. That's what I feel like well, in like I guess in not, urban living. It's crazy. It's just, it's, I mean, I understand what you're saying. It's like the risk you take. Yep. Because what are you supposed to do? Like you have to live your life. Like I walk down the street in front of cops all the time. And I just, I brace to see if I'm going to get shot just randomly yep. or tackled to the ground. But what am I supposed to do? You know, although I have started um, when I'm on a train and police officers get in to the car, I move to another car, which probably looks super suspicious, but I figure I'd rather look suspicious than like, than mistake me for somebody and kill me. So. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in a weird way, this is a little bit of a new normal, which is that if we live in sort of a terrorist age, we're just going to have to assume that threats are potentially all around us and we're just going to have to go on with our life. I mean, our lives. I mean, that sounds horrible, right? But (laughs) in this moment, it was a real concrete example. I was like, it cost me 20 bucks this morning. I'm not going to be paying 20 bucks each way. Mm -mm. So (laughs) my life wasn't worth 20 bucks, but... (laughs) I was, yeah, I was going to praise you for being courageous, but you're just cheap. So no, (laughs) no. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I hold my compliment, but I do think that a part of living is a kind of um, recognition of the danger, and you just have to do it anyway. Or I could be a shut-in, right? We've I've yeah, known that is a choice shut-in. that people are making. Never forget that Sigourney Weaver movie from the '90s. What was it called? Remember the one with her and Harry Connick Jr. and he's like trying to kill her, and she's like a shut-in. <laughs> do you remember this i'm not making this no up jason i have no recollection of that movie i saw it like eight times copycat that's what it was oh. called oh my- i thought i've no heard of copycat i did not realize that that was my media recommendation is copycat starring Gurney <laughs> weaver it's horrible. It's, horrible. it's great it's, really good. it's a great movie uh i mean look it was entertaining so i i, I highly recommend that also, that and the uh, Sandra Bullock vehicle, the net, which <laughs> came out awful. at the dawn of the net. Like, <laughs> it's great awful. to see what our anxieties about technology were like 20 years ago. It's laughable it's now. True, it's true. Let us jump into some topics. So we have a bunch of stuff that we are going to talk about. Uh, we had recorded a whole segment about Standing Rock that never made the air. I was going to air it, but then I saw that Standing Rock was over, so our conversation no. got stale. So Standing Rock, it looks like they are going to divert the pipeline from underneath the Sioux Nation, and everyone was really excited about it. I heard that the military veterans who had gone there to help 
uh, protest are now moving on to Flint, Michigan, which I thought was really great news, but it kind of begs the question, you know, that Flint, Michigan water crisis has been going on for quite some time, maybe as long as the Standing Rock crisis, but Standing Rock sort of like took off and got international attention. How come Flint never sort of like hit that? In that sense that in the nation, we were all aware of what was going on. We all saw pictures of the water coming out of the faucet and look like sludge or whatever. Like, how come we never got the groundswell behind Flint that we got behind Standing Rock? Well, Standing Rock was a drama taking place in real time. Yep. You know, it was, I think, this image of an indigenous people that's been moved around and pushed around and poisoned and killed for centuries, you know, making a big stand. It's just a very dramatic image, right? And they're not moving until this big corporate bad guy and its government backer you know, moves. And so you have like a kind of game of chicken. I think there's just something cinematic and dramatic about that. Flint was more like an awful thing was exposed and there can be outrage, but there wasn't, there wasn't this like call to like go stand with these people and like, let's see what's going to happen. You know, people, not that this is what was actually happening, but people like staring in the face of, you know, the police and saying, we're not moving. There's just something I think very romantic about that. And I don't mean to dismiss it, but there's something romantic about that. That's different from, we just realized we were poisoning all these people. Yeah. I mean, it's a, and it's also a, a failure of systems, multiple systems. So who do you protest? Where do you situate yourself? Do you go in front of the governor's house? Where do you go? I think standing rock for that reason, it, it, it had, there's a place yeah, I mean, that's it's a good point. really it's it's really specific. There's a specific action that you want yep. be taken or to not take in this case. Uh, with Flint, it was it felt very diffused. Yeah, and it felt like something where um, we were never going to be able to decide who was going to take the fall for that. I mean, I think at this point in time, no one is taking the fall. Maybe just... Um, well, no, I, I'm pretty certain I remember fingers being pointed. Yeah, fingers being oh, pointed fingers in middle. Pointed, but yeah, in multiple fingers, directions. Yeah, like, and, at well, middle, and at middle people. middle people. this guy, and this guy should yeah. have pointed that guy. And, you know, the, well, they, they, it's their fault they went broke. Well, no, they went broke because of X. It was just all of this finger pointing. And I, I think, Trish, you make a great point. Like, Standing Rock, it's like very clear. We don't want this being built right here. Whereas Flynn, it's like, yeah, just as you said, who who's at fault? Who are we mad at? Who needs to do something? That that, that was never clear because everyone's pointing at everyone else. Who needs? So, to, I, I did see something was approved today though for Flint. Flint, yeah, Flint finally was I think one hundred and seventeen million, I believe. It was some amount of money. I saw the article on my feed, and now I can't pull it up. I can't find it fast enough. Um, yeah, but it looks like they're doing something. Also, like I said, the military veterans are heading to Flint. I hear what you guys are saying. It's see what I'm hearing is that like protestation is most effective when the cause can be romantic. No, no, no. It, it, Jason makes a point about not necessarily romantic. He makes a point about what is going to be possible in a certain media environment. And media environment. It, exactly, because that's storytelling, and it's also how it's how the public can consume it. I, I think, it's, yeah, but it's it's a narrative issue. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, I know I use the word romantic, but I don't think it it has to be romantic. But there's, you know, like a like a good narrative is there's a conflict, and the conflict builds and builds and builds, and you're pushing towards a certain resolution. Again, with with Flint, for once we learned about it, 
I mean, it wasn't totally over, but the dramatic the part, yeah, yeah, was over. Standing Rock, we were all watching the conflict in real time. That, you know, that breeds, you know, that attracts people. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that attracts people to join in. And I think if we look at, you know, protests that have grown, like Occupy Wall Street, right? Started yeah. small and people saw it on TV and it was like, oh, they're going to stay there. And like that's drama happening in real time. Like that's, there's a certain appeal to that that's hard to replicate when something's been exposed and adjusted that already happened. And in fact, if you, if you go back to the Flint water crisis timeline, it goes all the way back to 2010. Mm-hmm. It's been going city- on for a while. Yeah, when the city decided to switch water authorities. So, you know, it's like, and it's a, and it's a series of very small acts mm-hmm. from that starting point. So unless you were going to identify a very concrete thing, it was always going to be difficult to get people to rally around this. Because think about Standing Rock. If you even go back to the Standing Rock timeline, there are elements of the Standing Rock timeline that's quite similar to what happened with Flint, which is that there's supposed to be a process that the Native American community is supposed to go through with the army, right? If they, if that was the point at which the public became aware of it, it would have also been just as diffused and just as confusing to, to attend to. But in now, some just, ways, they waited until like the last 10% of the, the pipeline was supposed to be completed and take a stand there. Trisha, you once had this idea about delivering information, news to people, using like a strong narrative so people yes. can understand. Because the conversation you and I had a very long time ago was about that some of these complex ideas, especially around science and government, can be broken down in a way to deliver to people and that there should be some person, group, organization out there that can do it. So I see what you guys are saying, and I agree. Like there was something very specific about the action, specific about the protests. But where does that leave us when it comes to things that are fairly complicated like Flint? And I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much, but it's like with the Trump presidency. Right now, people are protesting and calling on electors to quote unquote, do the right thing. And this recount is going on. But what are we saying? That once he's in office, there are a lot of complicated things are going to be happening. How can we organize against them if it's not sexy? Like, how are we going to get media coverage of those things? So while, yes, Flint, it's been going on for years and everyone's fingers pointed at everybody else, the fact of the matter is that there's real damage being done to people and to the environment, and yet somehow we can't get the kind of traction. I just wonder if this is a failure of narrative because that's something that we can fix, something I think we should be fixing anyway in 2016. You know, my understanding is there were certain points at which people start people in Flint started complaining, right, about how the water looked and how it smelled and how it tasted. If that story had gotten legs then, like if a reporter had become aware of that or if someone had done that and like went live on Facebook and it really got noticed, I think it could have like that would have been the dramatic moment. Look at this, anyone looking at it sees that it's unacceptable. I just called the government and they're saying it's fine. Unfortunately, like the, the general public did not become aware of that until it was well beyond that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, so, I mean, I, I think there's not a great answer to your question. I do think I, I agree with what Tricia said, however, many years ago that, you know, narratives, people understand the world through narratives. And if we want to get people to understand and act on certain things, that's how we have to deliver it. And those issues that aren't packaged that way, I think it is very hard to get people, I mean, we could probably sit here and list several issues that there's not public outrage about because there's not a 
good narrative around it. So Trisha, how do we build better narratives around these things then? I mean, I think in a weird way, you have to do what satire sites do, but don't call it satire. I think the idea I had at the time was that I wanted to dramatize key historical events Mm -hmm. with actors and performers and just put it on weekly, daily, almost like a soap opera, so that people could key into the real elements of the story by focusing on characters. Because I think what happens is that people will look at facts and it just gets really difficult to hold on to them for a very long time. And I think people also need like an emotional stake. I think part of it is that, I'll be honest, Flint was a black and a brown people story. I can't believe it took us this long for either of you to say that. No, I mean, I, but also the Native American is also a brown people story. So that, that, that's not why um, it's coming up now. And I think really Flint was a real investigative story. If you go, I, honestly, if you go and you look at the timeline for Flint, it is not something that is compelling. It is like this person had this new job. This person stopped this contract. I mean, these are the kinds of steps that took place in, that, in the narrative. How do you represent that? You know, I feel standing like, rockets, it's one spot. I get Don't it. Come but here. I feel like if people can follow the the plot of Westworld, someone could have made it palatable. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just... Listen, you, you have to understand, though. You have to understand that people have a different relationship with something that they think of as important. News. They want to approach it differently. If you tell them, if you tell me I need to do my homework, listen, didn't our parents say this? How come you can remember this song, but you can't remember? Oh my God. I knew the names at one point of every single Pokemon, like all the first 151. I knew all of them committed to memory. Exactly. Could you do the exact same thing for every single person in Congress and every single thing they've done that year? No. No. I can can name maybe 25 presidents in order. Well, no, look at, I mean, I, I love to talk about, look at people who know football and baseball stats, yes. but like yeah. don't know that Africa is a continent and not a country. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing, but we all have selective memory. I agree. Well, I think it's worth taking a moment to appreciate. I do think part of why Standing Rock got the attention it did is because of Flint. Yeah. I do think true. Flint sensitized us to like this environmental justice issue around water. I think if there had not been a Flint, then the complaint of the folks at Standing Rock saying, well, this is going to pollute our water would not have resonated as sharply as it did because of Flint. That's a really great point. I I don't know if I see that as clearly as you do, Jason. I don't know. I mean, there's no way to say it now because like we live in a post-Flint universe. (laughs) But I, I I know we're talking about brown people. However, you know what? I, I was walking around today and I had read the news story that the Mall of America has its first Black Santa. And just some of the comments that people were making about that. I was walking around today just thinking like, oh my God, like America really hates Black people. Like really, really hates them. And to the point where it's like, I've been reading up a lot on the Confederacy like those people were so hated black people so much and felt so strongly that they were better, that they were prepared to break up the country that their parents had just fought for, just fought for in order to make 
it's so that they were superior. And like, here we are a couple hundred years later, and it's pretty much the same thing. Like in this way, I feel like Flint, I want to say like Flint just didn't get the, all the traction because once all the finger pointed began, it was complicated, yes, but no one was that invested really because who was affected? Not anyone we care about, not any lives that really matter. But there's something about when you combine Native Americans, damage to the environment, automatically that's a story and it's a sexy one. And it captures your imagination because of these ideas we have about Native Americans. I'm just going to say this. I don't know if I feel really great about it when I think about Flint and how long that's been going on and how little we've been able to get done up until this point. I do think part of, part of the answer to your original question is for people who look at or, or think about black protest as always, uh, like every black protest, even if it's for a different reason, as another black protest, like we don't hear very often there, there aren't a lot of Native American protests that we hear about, certainly that I don't. Whereas over the past couple of years, there's been a lot of black protests, right? Black Lives Matter, um, mm-hmm. you know, police brutality, the, you know, the issues in Flint, hearing about that. I do think some of it, and I'm not, this is not good. I'm not saying this is okay. But some of it is, is like dilution. Or Protest like, fatigue. Yeah, yeah. Like for, for the, the general public who may not be terribly sympathetic to of of racism against black people it may feel like oh yet another yet another complaint from the black community i think that might be part of it chris which doesn't that doesn't conflict with anything you just said but it just like i could see that also being a part of why there's so much more tension on this issue affecting a different group of people of color that we don't hear from as much i will say though that um i did not get into the pipeline storyline it wasn't something I followed very much. I wasn't retweeting things about it. I wasn't posting things on my Facebook feed about it. I was more watching it because while the pipeline is a very clear win at this moment, because actually there's a really long way to go. Um, this is a pause and, uh, and they've promised to reroute, but promises, what does that mean? And if they're going to do it, they have until January 20th because Donald Trump is firmly committed to the pipeline. For me, the complicated question is, this is an environmental issue. Because one of the things that's, if you look at all the pipelines in the country, it was interesting that this one is the one that everyone decided to plant a rock on because there are many. Yeah. And, and this particular <laughs> pipeline is 1,000 miles long. It doesn't just yeah. pass underneath the Sioux Nation's lands. Yeah. It passes under a lot of people's lands and water tables. Yeah. I mean, and also one thing I will say too, though, is that people have been sort of romanticizing the Native American participation in this, but, they, but they themselves have been saying that this is not just about them. It's not just about the sacred spaces that they are trying to protect. They think this is just a water issue, period. Mm-hmm. And it's going to impact everyone's children. But it's it, it's sort of noteworthy that people are like, oh, this is a win for the natives. And this is a win. It's like, no, this is actually a, an issue for everyone to be concerned about. It's just that they have called themselves the water protector and you've assigned them this role and go on. But this is a key issue for a lot of communities. For me, it was like, okay, this was like a concrete step and a concrete action that everyone could be focused on. But the bigger picture is that this is the way that we get oil. 
this is, and people aren't changing their behaviors. That's the other thing too. We're not even asking people to change their behavior. Some of these people who are going up there and protesting, I mean, what are they going to be doing? Are they going to be getting cars that are going to go use? Do you know what I mean? And their SUV is... Right. It doesn't change our appetite for oil. And as long as we have the current level of oil appetite, we're going to be endangering the environment because if you put it underground in a pipeline, you're endangering the environment and water supply. If you drive it around in trucks, if you put it on a boat, there's no, you know, really safe, environmentally friendly way to transport oil. And so until, and, and that's, you know, much to my chagrin, like we just don't have a collective sense of urgency around reducing our appetite for oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end, so for you, Chris, while this might not, while this is sort of like an obvious public win, it's also um, not a win in a very deeper level. That's true. It's That's not challenging point. any of the prevailing um, institutions or relationships between institutions that are going to be able to make this um, not a continuing problem in the future. And just to show that prognostication is probably working, I don't know if you all saw the the Wall Street movie um, that they it, it was about the for, the foreclosure movie that was trying to explain the housing crisis. And one of the guys who has sort of anticipated the um, the housing crisis and the sort of bubble bursting, he, he had moved on and decided to focus on one new issue, and it was water. And so it's really interesting to me that for him, he was buying stocks and trying to figure out what was going to be happening because he thought the next resource that was going to be in danger for all of us was our water supply. Wow, Water World 2017. I mean, it's weird, right? <laughs> when I saw that, I thought he was right. <laughs> so Trump's tweet storms and late night kikis with foreign leaders is going to end up starting some sort of nuclear war. Or is it? So Trump somehow still thinks it's a good idea to be tweeting at Alec Baldwin, to be tweeting about what he's doing with Air Force One, tweeting his foreign policy towards Cuba, which is beginning to alarm different corners of the world, people who have to make real decisions about their people and products and economy. um, And they're taking these tweets as Donald Trump as signals about what his administration may do. Recently, he took a call from the president of Taiwan and was like so congratulatory and so... um, friendly towards her that China began to get nervous. Now, is this really a problem? Is this really, is this heightened attention we get on Donald Trump's ineptitude? Or is these the kind of problems every transition team gets as they try to get up to speed? I don't know if any of us know the answer to that. But I guess my deeper question is, in this age of a reality TV president, how do we prevent ourselves from being blown up? Is there anything that we can do as people um, to signal to our representatives, what can we do to stop him from like beginning a tweet storm against Kim Jong-un, who <laughs> probably doesn't have a sense of humor and launches nuclear weapons? Are these the end times? Trisha? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think we have to stop taking Donald Trump's tweet seriously. I was having a conversation with my buddy Jess about this a couple days ago. Shout out to Jess. Hey, Jess. On one hand, historically, we would have taken tweets from a president seriously because we know that the tweet was delivered within a certain, with a certain weight. So then you would give it weight. However, I don't think that that is the best approach to 
handling Trump. Just like how I don't think it's the, the best approach to handling Trump is constantly fact-checking. I just, I think that's a, I think that's a, I think that's a maze that you can't get out of. Because in fact, this Taiwan story seemed like some sort of spontaneously weird and horrible move. Except reports have come out that Bob Dole has been working behind the scenes for the past six months to facilitate this conversation. So this is not a thoughtless move. This is a very planned, strategic move. And so similar to the way we treated Trump's campaign, I think we're treating his presidency and the way he he approaches Twitter in the same way, which is that we're dismissive of it. We're calling him a fool. We're calling him this. And we're not playing, paying attention. Trump might be thought of as Oz. And you need to look at who's behind the curtain. What are they doing? Who are the players behind the scenes who are doing the real work of facilitating the sort of hidden agenda that Trump's tweets don't let us know? So the media spent like three weeks going crazy about these tweets and didn't pick up on any of that back end story. So I just think it's a big distraction dance. And I think we have to stop pretending that Trump's an idiot because I think that's a performance on some level. So Jason, distraction or impending disaster? Which one is it? <laughs> I definitely agree with you, Tricia. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of thoughtful strategic distraction. And I, I feel like I've heard a lot of reporters lately start to talk about basically saying what you're saying, that fact-checking every single thing is not the best use of time. Chasing every tweet is, is not the best reporting. I think we're in uh, this transition moment, right, where the campaign's over, but he's not president yet. So, like, whether there's disaster, Chris, like, I don't think we can really answer yet because we still, I mean, the question, and I feel like I just hear radio show after radio show about what's Trump going to do about this and what's Trump going to do about that? Like, we don't know. I agree with you, Tricia, that looking at people he's selecting and things that they've done is, is worth doing. But, you know, whether late at night will reflect what he does the next day when he's on the job or what his staff does, we really don't know. You know, there are, I feel like there are other leaders around the world that say outrageous things, but, but don't necessarily go to war over them. You know, whether Trump's going to be someone who, you know, tweets outrageous things, but on a day-to-day basis, the government continues to operate in a relatively normal way. Like that could be, like, I, I really don't know. I think once he's president and we see what's actually happening in foreign policy, does he go visit other countries? What happens when he does? What reaction does he get? It's, that's the stuff we're going to have to pay attention to. And I, it's just very hard to predict right now. And I, and I think part of it is because it is unprecedented. And I mean, I've heard some analysis about how apparently when John F. Kennedy became president, you know, he started doing these press conferences and talking to viewers on the television at the same time, like reporters were getting the messaging at the same time that the general public was. And that was like a big shakeup for the press. It was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like you're supposed to feed stuff to us. And then we package it for the general public. Now, I don't mean to say they're the same thing. Kennedy was not saying outrageous things the way Trump does, but now that we're like at a a moment like that, where he's got a medium that presidents have not used in the past in the way that he's using them. And so I think the media is trying to figure out how to deal with that. We're trying to figure out how seriously do we take the tweets. And it's just hard to know until he gets into office and we see what he actually does. How can we say that fact-checking the president and monitoring his communication is in somehow not a good use of journalist's time? That's the thing that I'm struggling with because while I want to agree 
because he is such a showman. And one, I feel like we shouldn't give into it. Two, I do believe it's a distraction. But how can we ignore it when it can actually have impact? I mean, it will have impact. I mean, unfortunately, it does. But at the same time, what happens is that you are allowing Donald Trump to decide your agenda. You know, I was listening to NPR and they were talking about, they were talking to a reporter about covering Trump. And it when he... Honestly, I thought it sounded like the most ridiculous thing in the world for this reporter. Because he's like, you know, we we went and we did our research. And then in the middle of the night, you know, he drops a couple of tweets. And, you know, that's, we, we, we then are trying to chase that and trying to figure that. I'm like, you've essentially allowed this person to decide. He's like, he's got like editorial control over your life. I just don't think that that's a healthy balance. I mean, I think on some level, you may have to look at his Probably tweets. Probably for who? The reporters or for us, the public? For the public. Trump tweets a lot of things. By the time you figure out what he's talking about, he's already moved on to something else. So if you're <laughs> going to be effective at, at unmasking what he's saying, you're gonna, it's going to take you a couple days to track it down. And you, and then he will have dropped something else, which is exactly how he ran his campaign. It's something that Janina in my other life talks about, which is like, before you had time to calm down and deal with Trump, he had already gone on to something ridiculous. And so what he does is he actually sort of like creates this environment where you are never on sure footing and you could never hold him accountable because he'd already moved on to something some other outrageous thing. I feel like if you're in a situation like that, you might have to, if you were a parent, right? If you're a parent and your child was like this, shouldn't you, don't you have to sort of pause at some point and say, okay, wait a minute, how do I rein this in? How do I gain some control here? So I, I, let me revise something I said earlier. It's not that he shouldn't be fact-checked. I think it's really a matter of symmetry. A tweet should not warrant a three-page article. Yep. A tweet okay, should I not warrant that. a 15-minute news segment. A tweet that says something false warrants a tweet from a reporter that says that that was false. Or an article that maybe lists several things and just a quick, this was false, this was true, this was false. I think it's that asymmetry that is really how the media has been played. And frankly, it's how he won the primary. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he just got so much free media because he was able to generate hours and hours of coverage based on very short communications. And, and so, that, again, I think it's a real mind shift. I think the press needs to adapt to it. We need to adapt to all this as an audience, as a general public. That asymmetry is not going to serve anybody well. We, we need to spend much more time analyzing what's happening, policy decisions, you know, and not just the president, what's going through Congress, and, and just spend as much time as he's spending tweeting is how much we should spend dispelling. For example... Trump tweeted that he suspected, but there were what, some 3 million votes that were faulty. What was really interesting, and I think I share that with you, Chris, which is the reporter, um, Jay Rosen, the, the, the instructor at NYU, he talked about how that tweet was covered the next day by the New York Times. The New York Times used Donald Trump's tweet to suggest that certain votes were illegitimate. Just the way they said it. They used him as kind of a source. So instead of sort of, instead of saying Donald Trump raises the question of the legitimacy of 3 million voters, the New York Times could have said Donald Trump adopts a white, a right wing conspiracy about the legitimacy of certain votes. 
Mm-hmm. That's those are three. Those are that's two different headlines, right? One mm-hmm. suggests that it's already a, it's a it's a given Donald Trump's right, and the second one raises the question of whether this guy is just adopting wacky ideas. At the end of the day, the New York Times chased Donald Trump. Was that useful? And then they're not chasing the next piece that's come out recently, which is that as a result of that that item that got a lot of mileage, they're now stature. There are now these sort of bills roaming around in some of those key states that he suggested these votes were happening where they were trying to suppress the vote. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you, you know what I mean? So you've created this like feeling from the populace that something wrong happened. And now lawmakers are going to stick some laws through in response. Is there any going backwards? Is this what we have to What's deal backwards? with every president and every candidate from now on? Have, have we, Cross the line. Have we broken the seal and now there's just no going back? I think we don't. I mean, I hate to keep saying this. I don't think we know because he's the first. I'm fascinated to see who will run against him in four years and what approach they'll take. I mean, it could be that by then the whole country is so exhausted reading his tweets that we're ready for someone who's, you know, much more strategic and deliberate and has a lot more gravitas to their communications. Someone like Alec Baldwin. (laughs) (laughs) I do Um, wonder though. Mark my words. I do wonder. I do wonder if this suddenly opens the floodgates to more Ronald Reagan like presidents where people think that there's a certain level of charisma that's required without job experience. Not even Ronald Ronald Reagan. Ross Perot. Like something like Ross Perot. Like, candidates i mean candidates who have nothing in the tank other than the ability to get people riled up now we have proven that literally anyone (laughs) can be president it doesn't matter if you have a sex tape it doesn't matter if you grabbed women by the pussy it doesn't matter if you sexually assaulted other women and then told them they were going to be arrested doesn't matter if you say that uh, women who have abortions need to be locked up none of that matters like, I think we're going to see a whole new candidate come out of this. Like, the candidates who are like, yeah, I got nudes. Big deal. So did the first lady. <laughs> okay. <laughs> have a point. Come on into power. I thought that Donald Trump had succeeded in lowering the office of the presidency to such a degree that I don't think it will really matter in the future. It might be ceremonial. I continue to think that a big part of this past election is just people becoming fed up with wage stagnation and economic insecurity jason i said well wage stagnation (laughs) like we've had stagnant wages for most of the working population for a long time i think that um this is obviously simplification but you know people were like look neither party has delivered to address this situation i'm doing the same as or worse than i've been doing my whole life and so let's try a non-politician. I think, the, again, it's similar to what I said about the tweets. Like the question will be, in four years, do people feel like throwing the bums out, so to speak, worked? Or are people going to be then ready for maybe a more radical but policy-based, you know, addressing of it? Like are they going to be ready for an Elizabeth Warren or a, a Bernie Sanders or something? I don't know. I think that is a real fun idea. But they didn't throw the bums out. Um, they threw one bum out who was just leaving on his own. So um, everyone's gone back in. I think it's really fascinating that Trump has filled his cabinet with just really, 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 really wealthy people who have no idea about the lives these people lead. 
So I think it'll be really curious to see how that population is served by billionaires. Yeah, it sounds like you're introducing some kind of mystery to those results. And <laughs> well, I really don't think there will be any. <laughs> listen, it seems like an open question. According to these... Yeah, according to listen, isn't that isn't that essentially what Jason is suggesting that these people got tired of politicians who were ineffectual and decided to go with businessmen? Now, I remember the last time that happened, and I think we call that the Gilded Age. Um, <laughs> nothing good came out of that. No, so um, you know what I mean. So it's like again, it's a little bit of I get frustration, but I don't know. I mean, was that the only solution? I don't know. Only time will tell, but let's hope that this all doesn't come crashing down in the next couple of years because I need to see how this whole Marvel Cinematic Universe thing pans out. So- <laughs> I, I couldn't wait to hear what the what the rationale was going to be, <laughs> why your concern was. You I didn't know, it, that one, but I, I love it. I love I, it. Know, that was exactly my take. I was like, okay, please, God, do not let some crazy racist person kill me on the street. This is highly possible. I Before really- you see Black Panther? Yes. <laughs> Yes. Oh my God. That's exactly <laughs> what I was saying. Before I see Black Panther and before I see how Trump voters feel in three years. I know. We want that. We so may not I, get that far. Listen, <laughs> these are the things that I need. I mean, when are you going to put your head down and just hope, right? I do really want to see Black Panther, though. So, well, so do I. <laughs> I'm letting you know that's already my media recommendation for when it comes down. Um, Speaking of glorious black people on the screen, Jason, you wanted to talk about Insecure, which I turned you on to for my media recommendation. You binge watched it. And uh, let's talk about it. What were your thoughts? So, yes, I I binge watched first The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, which was kind of the web series. Well, it was a web series by Issa Rae. And then I binge watched Insecure, which is the HBO series by Issa Rae. Lots of similarities between the two, some differences. Um, what I'd love to throw out, and as the you know white guy on the podcast, I'm throwing it out Wait, to you too. You're white. I know it's shocking. How do we know. let him in? How do we let him in? How did we um, get this far? <laughs> but uh, so I'm the last person that should say what I'm about to say. But what I, I find I found interesting is she really mocks in in both of those series. I'm going to use the term institutions loosely, but like institutions of of African American culture. In The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, I feel like, you know, Christian fervor is really mocked. In both series, I think black sororities are made to look very funny. She's got this hilarious line about spoken word, (laughs) where she says, um, rap and poetry had a baby named spoken word. I wish I could abort that baby. Um, But these are are all things that um, African-Americans, and particularly educated African-Americans, in many cases hold dear. And I just find it interesting that, you know, she, she happens to be someone of Nigerian descent and is, you know, really making light of these kind of popular African-American institutions. Like, I just, you know, throwing it to you, both of you are, are immigrant kids, black immigrant kids. Like, I don't know. Is there something there? Am I making too much of it? Like, I don't know. I found it, I found it really interesting. I think you're picking up on exactly why her comedy is so successful. Yep. You know, I think it, she is She is definitely speaking, when I watch it, she's definitely speaking to me because I get all of the jokes. I think there, she, def, she has a keen eye for the things in the black communities that are funny, silly, like overdone, overwrought. And she brings it all out on that show. I mean, from, you know, black people's hysteria around 
gay stuff for back of a letter, uh, lack of a better word. There's this scene where Molly confesses that she fooled yeah. around with a girl in college and the guy she's dating says, Oh yeah, I was drunk and I let some guy blow me. And like her entire face is like, what? You're gay. And it's like, that you went down on some chick. Like what? How is, how am I any more gay than you are? And that was like whole half episode spun out for comedy and drama. I think Issa Rae really has an antenna for like these sillinesses yeah. in the in the black community. And in a way that doesn't come across in like a really comically stereotype like white people do this and black people do that. And that's why this is funny. You know what I mean? It felt fresh to me. Trish? Well, I was listening to an interview with Issa Rae on uh, Fresh Air. Yeah, and that. That was great. yeah, that was a really good interview. But I also think what was noteworthy about that interview is the fact that Issa Rae is really an outsider. And that in many ways, all of the sort of normal, quote unquote, normal things that Black people are supposed to be into, she's never really been able to fully connect and be present there, right? Because she talks about her experience of moving to Los Angeles. She talks about her experience moving to Los Angeles and people would come up to her and say, oh, you must like this rap song or you must like, you know. So there are all these things that people expected her to have experienced and that was not her experience of them. So I think that she does bring that gaze, a little bit of the immigrant gaze, like, oh, I'm not quite sure what the value of all of this is. Because I'm really Black, obviously, but I have this like lived experience at home with my immigrant parents, and they don't understand half the stuff you guys are talking about. Like, There's an interesting section where she talks about how her father didn't really understand this idea of blackness in the US and a kind of like over overwhelming like defense of it their their take was you're here you make your money you get a good job you know what i mean so right. there wasn't a lot of angst around some of the um the issues that i think traditionally um are a part of i think black american experience i think one of the things that she gets at is really the immigrant black experience and um and being an insider outsider in that way but I also love my, the thing I love about her though, is her observations of working in white spaces because <laughs> yeah, I, those are some of the funniest scenes. <laughs> Cause I mean, those are great. <laughs> Wait, can I just say the logo for we got y'all being a white hand with three black. And what I love, it's one thing I love about her writing. There's so much that doesn't get called out. It's like very subtle. Like they never yes, talk about the logo, but you just see this hand, you know, white <laughs> hand with three black kids standing in. Oh, it's just so Oh my God, it was so well done. And her white colleagues and just, I mean, and just some of the subtle elements that play out when you're the only black person in the room. I mean, it's just, it's Can I beautiful. say what I particularly liked about Insecure was that much as when black people exist in white worlds on white shows, like Friends or Seinfeld or whatever, they're highly caricaturized. It was the same thing with the white people on this uh, show. Totally. When yes. you think about it, all only the black people had complicated motivations yep. and subtle humor, with the exception perhaps of their neighbor who was a crip. But with the, with the exception, oh of no, him, he was a blood. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh shit! Right. He, he got it wrong. Blood. That's right. He said a C word. He is a blood. <laughs> but other than him, like the the white people she worked with were such obscene caricatures of whiteness which was hilarious because you don't often see that. It's usually the white people who have all of the complex motivation and these people were just tools. Except, the every co- sense of that except, word. Her, except her coworker, which I think is somewhat interesting. The, the one that she works with closer than others. The, the, 
Yeah, but, but her, became, her human, yeah, her humanity comes out a little bit more every now and then. But yes, you're right. <laughs> yeah, in the beginning, she was absolutely useless. Yeah, in the beginning. Well, you know what? You know what else? I think she does a lot with gender like that too. So yes, when does. I watched, when I saw the first episode, I was actually really disturbed because in the first episode of of Insecure, the two male characters, her boyfriend Lawrence and Daniel, her old friend, are. Very stereotypical. Lawrence is the baby boy sitting on the couch, won't get a job. Daniel is the wants to sexy come through as sex. Fuck. All right, Chris. All right, sorry. So down. But I'm but like doesn't want to be in a relationship. Doesn't want to be in a relationship. And then and and after I saw it, I, I remember reaching out to a couple of friends who said, "Oh, you got to watch this." And I was like, "Man, this is like the same, you know, blackmail stereotypes." But then as the season goes on, they're like really emotionally deep, complex characters and. And and I love how like she's the one who raps and says like completely inappropriate <laughs> thing. Like I don't know, she did, just like she plays with racial caricature, she does it with gender. I she she really is brilliant. Now let me, I want to ask you two one more question. So mm-hmm. the prevalence of the B and N words, yeah, coming out of those characters' mouth. The only thing that like really bothered me is like it was so excessive and so normalized using the N word for just mean man. I mean, even in the misadventure, she even refers to her her white boyfriend as a white N. That was the one thing that leaving like after watching all that, I'm like, that still feels bad. I'd love to hear what you two think about. Listen, people talk like that. I have black male friends, mostly straight, who use that word just in conversation and in context, I understand what they are saying and I cannot take offense to it. I mean, but if anyone else was to walk by, I'd freak the fuck out. But like, I, that's, that is how some people talk. It doesn't need to be sanitized for your protection. Like she's telling a story that is about this woman, this 29-year-old black woman who moves in black circles in parts of LA. Like that's what you're going to hear. I will say, <laughs> I mean, I think if you hang enough around with my sister, me and my sister, I think bitch comes out of me. Bitch, what you doing? Bitch, what's going on? Bitch. Yeah. <laughs> it does happen a lot um, with so much affection because I can't call a stranger a bitch. No. You know what I mean? That's the Don't thing. Be- I can't and I wouldn't want to, but it's like I can, we're so close. I can call you the worst word and you will hear the affection in it. Like, I mean, it's, and it's not even like trying to like reappropriate the word or any of that kind of stuff. That just, I mean, I don't use the N word. Um, I just don't have a comfort level with it. You know, listen, I'm, I'm totally old school Jamaican in that way, but Mm -hmm. um, definitely the B word gets tossed around quite a bit in, in my like language (laughs) and mostly with my sister though. So I want to I want to just put out this recommendation to the audience. I know a lot of this has been inside pool. Maybe a lot of people haven't seen Insecure, but I was thinking today like in this in these troubled political times when I know a lot of white people, especially white women who are trying to figure out what they can do, how they can sort of make an impact. I'm going to suggest to people listening to this, if you haven't seen this show, watch it. Uh, watch Insecure, watch Luke Cage, watch Queen Sugar, watch a show with a predominantly black cast about black people living in black neighborhoods doing black things. Because uh, that show is for you and you should watch it. Because I think maybe sometimes that 
that kind of gets lost. And these shows are sort of slated off to like, oh, I'm not the correct audience. No, you are definitely the correct audience. And you will hear the N-word and you will hear a bitch and you will you will need to feel comfortable because that's, like I said earlier, that's how some people talk. And you just gotta like, you have to live with it. Well, I think the point is watching watch a show where black people have real lives. I mean, exactly. as real as TV can make them, but watch a show where black people have full lives because I think it's rare to actually have meaningful characterizations of black people on TV or of pe- folks of color in general. Um, I think, I think that's the same thing with the, the show with um, master. I think that's the same thing that happens in master of none. I think he really approaches sort of the ridiculousness of situations very well as well for um, men of color. So, I mean, I, I, and I guess Atlanta is similar. Um, I haven't seen Atlanta, but I think there's just this like really great crops of shows coming up where it's about looking at people of color as people. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking, but yes. Um, not even, would, not the sole friend in your group. Exactly. Look into all the shows that I mentioned. Honestly, I mean, start with Insecure Cuts, a half hour comedy. There are yeah. eight episodes. You can get through it in an afternoon. And it's so, it's so freaking good. funny. It's so good. Did we tackle Jason's um, question? Here's my issue, and, and I admit I'm getting into the broader issue with the N-word and the B-word. And my issue is that, and I saw this on the show, sometimes the N-word is used as just to mean man, casual, maybe even affection, as you said, Trisha. But then sometimes the same characters will use the word as a pejorative. And my concern, and I know that happens in real life, like I absolutely know that, my concern about that, though, is if there are times when it, ha- when it has a negative connotation, then is it possible that it always carries some underlying negative connotation and that there's some psychic damage done every time it's used? Nah. Oh, Chase said no. <laughs> I mean, I think this is one of those situations. I think this is like, you know what you reminded me of just now? You reminded me of like, like one of those earliest 1920s social workers who like all these yeah. white women wringing their hands about what might be happening to the poor people of color in the gutter. Like, you know what? Like black people have been around for a very long time managing the very thing that you are worried about. And somehow we all seem to be okay. Like I, I understand why you're asking the question. Second, wait a second. Do you know how many black men get killed by other black men in our society? Yes. Well, I, the statement that like black people have been managing that and somehow everyone's okay. Like there are a lot of black men that have huge self-loathing issues. You, okay. You've made a, a, a gigantic leap through the use of the N word to black on black murder. And I, yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't even want to trace that because I don't think it's going to, one's going to lead to the other to restate what you're saying. You're thinking like using the word over and over again is creating a negative sort of psychological experience, which is going to have actual consequences. I mean, I think that the consequences of being black in America are going to sort of supersede any sort of minor fractures that are occurring in black psyche over the use of the N-word within uh, black communities. Yeah, because I guess, I mean, is that the larger question you're asking? Is that are we damaging ourselves when we use these words? Because I think the word really only has the power to wound when you're able to follow it up with other things. Mm -hmm. You know, the word really on its own, it's just a word. But when that word then suggests that you have the ability to decide whether I get a job, whether I get justice, whether I get all, I mean, that's really when the layers of that word has, 
has some problems. But if it's just used within like a, an affectionate space, I, I don't see a problem with it. I, I mean, I, I, again, I don't use it. And I guess I actually have a very strong reason why I don't use it because I do believe that the word, I do believe that words have power. I do. And so um, it's not one that I want to internalize and have as a part of my space. But I feel like that's just something that's individual to me. I feel like that's something that I, I kind of take on. Um, I might have to do some more thinking about it. Good question, though, Jason. I will tell I mean, you, I, I, have a, I have a memory as a maybe seven or eight-year-old child. I was over a friend's of my, friend of mine's house. And I remember his mother for not cleaning up after himself and directing the N-word at him saying, you know, clean that up. And it seemed to me, and it's not like that's an isolated incident. Like, I just feel like there are times when that word is utilized to suggest ignorance or laziness. Mm -hmm. Utilized by black people, directed at other black people to signify ignorance or laziness. I don't think you're you're totally wrong, Jason, but I don't think, I, I feel like you're not hitting the center. Like the way that you're constructing that doesn't feel particularly useful. I think there's a lot of conversations we had around the N-word, but the way that you're positioning it feels a little... There's so much white gaze in what you're saying. You're coming from the point where you're made uncomfortable and you're projecting that onto the Black people hearing the word without any real proof that Black people are in some way damaged by it, that you're making an assumption. Well, I'm asking a question. Yeah. Maybe no. I, I know, but I mean, even the answer that I give you is idiosyncratic to me, and I can't speak for all black people everywhere. I'm sure there are definitely black people who, who are reacting the way that you do, but me being around black people and me being in spaces where that word gets used, uh, well, I can tell you about my experience, but I, ex- I can also tell you about the experience I pick up from other black people. And I don't think that the word gets said, then everyone like, you know, looks downcast for a moment and then goes on with <laughs> the conversation. <laughs> well, I, mean. I mean, but you know what, you're, you're right. I mean, you make, you make a good point. I mean, this is one of those moments where the richness of context is so important. What's the, one of the things that makes language like such a fascinating thing? It's like if I'm like, if I'm out with Trisha and I'm like, and we're shopping and just drinking margaritas, I don't know where we are, but both those things at the same time. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, oh, bitch, this is the best we are going to get today. Yes, bitch. Yes. And we're snapping and we're twirling. That's really different. If, you know, it's really different from like, Trisha. Um, you don't know how to tip a waitress. You are such a bitch. Right there. It's totally different. It's yeah. different. You can say that the first time that I said bitch to Trisha as we were twirling and snapping, <laughs> what you're saying, Jason, is that she was in some way psychically minutely injured by that. And I think what I'm getting at is that, no, she wasn't. Because okay. context is king. Right. Yeah, and context well, with every, every word is king. I mean, I yeah. think that's the, I think that's, I mean, and I mean, I guess there is a book called the N word. That's probably what gets explored in that damn book, isn't it? Written by a uh, Kennedy, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that is the question. I mean, the question is, do some words have power regardless of context? And I think well said, Trisha. That is the question. That, that, that is, is absolutely the question. Once I, again, Trisha just brings it together. Well, that's that why she's, that's why everyone's team Trisha. Can I get a whoop whoop for hashtag team Trisha? <laughs> Can I just say, this is why I love the word motherfucker, because I don't feel like it's race-based or gender-based, and I feel like it's always negative. Don't ever think that it's not. 
Oh no, I've I've used it in, in a very complimentary way. I use it all the time. Hey, motherfuckers, time to wake up. How do you use it? You guys know I refer to my kids that way. I cannot believe you admitted that in public. Jason, you're a son of a bitch. I don't say it to them. Jason refers to her his children as motherfuckers, and let me tell you something. The motherfucker. That's not cute. It's exclusive. Now, now suddenly I'm on your side. That word, regardless of context, is offensive. I trapped you. I trapped you. I don't like it when you call the chains motherfuckers. It's impossible. It's impossible because because Prince gave us permission to use it in all ways that were complimentary. Honey, listen. If we were taking advice from Prince about what is acceptable in polite society, we'd all we'd all be so much freakier. We really pussy would. control. We'd be happy yeah, with that's all I have to say. Pussy control. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even Nazis occasionally use affection. You're such a Nazi. Who um, the fuck is saying that? I mean, it means that you're like heavily rule based, right? That's oh, how I people can't. generally use that. But yeah, I don't I've think there's any. Yeah. yeah oh, now that you said, I, yeah, I was. I remember my first principal told me, she's like, "The class you're gonna teach, the students are very challenging to manage. You're gonna need to be need to be chief Nazi in there." <gasps> I remember thinking, like, I'm really not comfortable taking on that role. That was not in the did job she, description. Did I was she never told I was going to be chief Nazi. Did she know you were a Jew? That's like, see, that's just something Jewish. I would never no, say to him. He was Jewish. That's oh, Jewish. oh well, well, then there you go. The there you go. See, then I wasn't comfortable with it. See, maybe I'm just oversensitive. Maybe it's just me with all no. these words. I'm just oversensitive. Well, listen, I think a proper degree of sensitivity is important. Because that's why, I mean, because essentially you're honoring the history of those words. You're honoring where they came from. Oh, thank you, Trisha. Let's end right now. I, this I know. Great. This is good for you. It's a right? great note to end on. <laughs> I just got affirmed by Trisha. <laughs> <laughs> and scene. <laughs> so it was announced that Beyonce has like nine Grammy nominations, yada, yada, yada. Who really cares? This is what I want to get to. <laughs> the music... The music industry has continued to fragment. It's at once extremely niche and also extremely general. But also one almost a year after Oscar So White, when it was kind of, I mean, to me anyway, it sort of underscored how useless these awards were when you just give awards to your friends. Why do we even continue to bother with these farces? Are we really rewarding art? Or are we just rewarding like the public's adulation of you? And to the degree that, Oscars So White last year didn't really award movies that should have been awarded. Like, what are we even doing anymore? Is any of this relevant? Does it matter? Wow, Christopher. I know. Well, you know what? I just find all of it, it's just so, the pageantry of it, I guess you can make the case that the whole thing is entertainment. But to frame it as like a competition, like is this, was the Oscars like the earliest reality show? Like real stakes for real people? But lately, it just feels like such a sham. And Grammy nominations and the Grammys never really seem to make any sense to me. Way back in the day when when best rap was not a category sometime in the 90s, when <laughs> rap was already like an established thing. I don't know if you remember, but Will Smith like boycotted, or I think he boycotted because it wasn't being televised along with best rock and the other things. And we were talking about a time in the 90s. It's just like how irrelevant it was back then. And it's not like it's gaining relevance. Honestly, I, I wonder if any of these things make sense in a kind of mediated world that we live in. Because you could make the case that this was this is like a an avenue for you to be introduced to an art form that you don't know of or artists that you don't know 
or um, to make some sort of case for good art. But I feel like all of this is around us. I feel like, and also I feel like people actively seek out what they're going to enjoy. So I don't really understand the purpose of nominations and those things anyway, because it has been revealed over time that it's highly politicized. You can't even make the distinct, you can't even make the argument that, oh my God, if I watch this, I'm going to be introduced to something that everyone accepts as being good. And can I just say, Jason, before you react, there's no accounting for taste when it comes especially to music. Like you like what you like. I do feel like movies and TV shows can be a little different because quality, especially when it comes to production value, is so much more apparent. But with music, who's to tell me that if I like like old school Debbie Gibson, that she sucks? Like that's clearly your opinion. I totally agree. Uh, you know, if there was like a rubric that people agreed, like this is what good music is, and then we were measuring everyone against a rubric, like that could be interesting. But there's no... But there's immediately not, useless. <laughs> once, the rubric, once the rubric gets established, it would be that's immediately true. useless. That's a good point. I, but I, I agree, and I, I think it's the same in movies. I mean, I think we had yeah. this conversation a, a year ago or so where I, I don't get, like, if you had five different actors play the same role, maybe then you could say who the best actor is, but they're all playing different roles. It's like apples to oranges. So if you had five guitarists play the same song, who did it the best, maybe, maybe then... I, I think it's absurd, and I, there's something wrong with the three of us because we don't like these award shows. We don't like professional sports, so I don't know. I, I agree. The award shows, I don't get it. I've never liked them. I don't like them now. I don't. I don't get it. I don't know why people. I watch. will. I'll make a case. Um, Please, someone has to. Otherwise, this topic's over right now. Yeah, yeah. This is a horrible segment. We're all just I like know. This it's not. Um, so I used to love them, but over time, my eyes opened to the reality of what they were. For example, the Oscars issue. How is it possible that in all the years that we've been making movies, no female director has ever done a movie that was great, except for one? Well, obviously, well, you know what I mean? But that that's what became clear after a while. After a while, you just started to realize that this is not really about excellence. It's about something else. And I think when I was younger, I thought that this was a marker of excellence. And so this is why I tuned into award shows. And I often, I I remember, or even like beauty pageants or all those kinds of things. And I remember with older, you know, like older Jamaican relatives looking dismissively dismissively at all of it. And of course, once um, the color purple won nothing, Mm-hmm. I mean, movies could never really make and have any valuable merit in our house at, from that point on. <laughs> and so then it really became clear, but it's only become clearer and clearer as I've gotten older, that these, these ceremonies are about other things. And until you can actually really be honest and truthful about the thing that they are about, like that article <laughs> that I recommended on my timeline from the New Yorker, it's time we talk about what we're not talking about, which is racism and things like that. I think it's the same thing with with um, films and music. When you talk about things that are along a sort of avenue of white male appreciation, mm-hmm. If you don't say that the closer your material gets to that, the more likely you are to be rewarded, then 
I can't even fake the funk with you anymore. I've gotten too old to fake it. So if something wins best picture, it doesn't mean the same thing it did to me five years ago. Five years ago, I would actually say, oh, that's really great. That's really fantastic. And I'd be really invested in it. But now when I hear that something's won best picture, I was like, oh, I guess people behind the scenes have decided that this is a good time to reward this person. I mean, I no longer make those judgment calls that, that the winning has value, except in the sense that it has monetary cachet and that if you win it, you can leverage for another part or you can leverage for money. Why do we care? But see, that's why we don't have to see it on TV anymore. (laughs) But but the thing is, okay, Patricia, because if that's the only thing that comes, strike that. If that's what the Oscars are about, then shouldn't the Oscars go to the movie that makes the most money? No, because that's not what they're trying to sell you. They're trying to sell you on, on, listen, it's show business, but the Oscars was created to sell you on it as an art form. Meh. Oh, God. Yeah, that's true. I guess. And it was private. Initially, remember, the Oscars, the first Oscars wasn't really televised. It was private. It was like a private party. It's like industry awards, like just like you'd give it your job or something. Yep. Or like book awards that never get published. I mean, that never gets, um, you know, televised. Yeah, no one reads books anyway, so. (laughs) (laughs) But But imagine if we cared about a book award. In the same way, if we publicize it, the authors were able to get your time, you were able to see it on screen, you know, all of that. I mean, that would generate a massive industry around books, but that just doesn't happen. Look, I can hear the case for sportsing. You know, I know that people really enjoy sportsing. <laughs> I still love that verb. You know, I know. I know they like to watch sportsing. And I love it. And they like to talk about sportsing. I, I get it. It's just not my thing. But like, the awards seem like a step too far for entertainment. It's now entertainment about entertainment. And I just feel like when we're talking about entertainment, it doesn't need a meta level. It just doesn't. Not anymore. I think it did. I think it did initially. I think before you had an environment where it was surrounding you. Yes. Yeah, actually I agree. And before we had instant access to the stars and the directors and producers while they were in the midst of their projects. That's right. That's a good point that would have been a little bit more entertaining. I saw Doctor Strange a couple of weeks ago. And when the film was filming here in New York, they had like on Instagram, like shown like scenes, like what the actors are doing and like, you know, their costumes and everything. So when certain scenes in the movie came in, I was like, oh, I remember when they shot that. Oh, I remember seeing that video. And it just seemed like the access I had to the movie way before I even saw it. Like, Further discussion about that process and the actors and the producers and the directors. I already had that conversation. I saw interviews with all these people before the movie even came out. Like, I don't need the meta anymore. I'm done. Well, I, you know what? I will, I, I will introduce this idea, though, that if you want to watch an award show to see what the business cares about and is trying to sell, that's the mm-hmm. only reason why you do it. That's what you can. That's what you can say comes out of it. But you can't say that they've decided the best thing that year. I mean, I think we all know that. I think we all know you're not deciding. Now the you best do thing is. I, I guess my question was just about why are we even bothering? Like, <laughs> like why are we? I even agree. Bothering? Why are we? I don't, I don't. I don't think any of us know. It just like I said, like do your sportsing, watch your sportsing, enjoy your movies and TV and music. But like the added level of trying to be excited for Beyonce as she picks up nine more Grammy awards, like whatever that I, who cares? I do. I enjoy watching athleticism. 
What I don't understand is the emotional and egoic investment in particular teams and individuals. Like, oh, of course. How can you not? That's the most comprehensible part of it. I it really feel, is, Jason. What? I have no connection. Even at, hey, look, I live in DC. I have no connection to the Redskins or the Nationals. I enjoy watching like impressive athleticism, but whether one of those teams, because I live in the city where they play, <laughs> and I mean the Redskins don't even technically play in the city, but I have some ultra identification with how they do, and like if they win, somehow that's a win for me, and if they lose, like that's a lo- loss for me. I don't, I don't understand it. I have no investment in it. Like I just don't, I don't get that part. It's just an affiliation that you choose because it's fun. It's fun yeah. to be like, oh, I care about the New York Yankees, whatever, because I live in New York. I'm such a New Yorker. Like, it's part of the whole sportsing phenomenon. <laughs> I love sportsing. You should write a book called Sportsing. I swear. We should have a podcast called Sportsing. Yeah. <laughs> what I learned from watching the sports. Sportsing by Chris <laughs> Well, I mean, I understood it right away because – it happens in tennis. I have a favorite tennis player. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, and my any, God. anyone that beats this favorite tennis player is my enemy. I mean, shit. as a tennis player, he's my enemy. I don't give a shit about him in personal life. But. Oh, oh, right. You Let me tell you something. <laughs> Trisha, get her talking about Rafa Nadal. And you would have thinking. You, okay, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Get her talking about sportsing. You would have thinking. <laughs> that he has personally wronged her. You would think he that he snuck into her house and like rearranged her drawers or something. He like, really did. Like, he did. Do, do because your dislike for that man is so deep that if he if he ever knew, he'd be terrified of you. Well, not really, but my dislike of him is because I think that he has changed my sport for the worst, not oh, the better. But you personally hate him. If you saw him, no, not straight, I mean, not really. I hate him. Up to you and said, "I hear you're a very big tennis sportsing fan. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Rafael Nadal. What would you do?" I'd say, um, "Fed's my fave," but I know some people who like you. Oh my god! Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very cordial. Okay. So- <laughs> I can't even pretend. No, for you can't. Years, for years, uh, this man gave me Ajita uh, <laughs> by beating my fave, and Jason doesn't even get it. <laughs> Jason doesn't even care. I'm all, Jason, I love wake him. Up, wake up. Jason's yeah, yeah, okay. over there. Okay. okay. All right. Let's move on <laughs> to media recommendations. It's something that's. <laughs> Stop! <laughs> something that you've heard or read you think other people should see, hear, or read. <laughs> Who has a great one to start us off? I'll go. Yeah. Ooh, fun. You know, I always have great ones. Well, so my relative. my kids have discovered a relatively recent Mickey Mouse cartoon. It's on the Disney Channel. I think it. I think it was 2013. And it's 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 like old school animation. Like it looks like Mickey Mouse from like I don't know 1950 1960. But um and and the action. It's very action oriented is very similar to what like we watched as little kids, like kind of Tom and Jerry characters chasing each other explosions, but with like 
modern day technology like they have cell phones and like so it's happening in the in the present day i love it i think it's hysterical it's like two minute cartoons they have episodes that take place in all different countries um the only thing i'll say about it is you know i was watching and i was like I don't, is this okay for the kids like i don't want them to watch tom and jerry because tom and jerry like chase each other with like kitchen knives like they actually use <laughs> They use things around the house that could kill people, and I don't want my kids watching that. But I was like, this is like they're driving around, and there's a huge explosion. That's not going to happen. But I have noticed my kids love it, and their behavior has become somewhat inappropriate emulating these characters. So it's been an interesting challenge. But I really like the cartoon. That's fast. That's a really great media recommendation. I have a very but, but also, But he also has like a warning in there. <laughs> With a slight warning. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. That's okay. Um, so I have a media recommendation that's a little nerdy and a little newsy. But so many years ago, I worked for an organization called the Center for Media Literacy. And a lot of the things that have been coming up lately, I think, are real media literacy moments. And so I would um, recommend that for people who are trying to figure out how to make sense of news, information, things that are coming across their their feeds, I would suggest that you check out the five key questions from the Foundation for Media Inquiry. And that's a website called medialit.org. And you can just type in medialit.org and type in the search thing, five key questions. And it will introduce you to how to have a sensible approach to your consumption of news and information. It's really been very helpful. I discovered the Center for Media Literacy in 1998. It is what guides the way I approach information. Has been since the moment I found it. Nice. So, um, so I, I recommend it highly. I feel like you're destined to be the United, the first United States Secretary of Media Literacy, Tricia. I just feel like it finds its way into every conversation. Do it. It, it, it. You know what, though? It's... It's the only way you can really take in take in information. You've got to be able to break information down in those chunks quickly. Yeah, that's uh, the Canadians have been doing it for years. <laughs> I don't have a very strong recommendation, so I'll just share what I've been reading. I've been reading "Race Matters" by Cornell West. Mm. <laughs> oh, what was that? Oh, what was oh, that? Boy. I mean, I know, I know why she's saying why? that. Why, Dr. West took a turn. Yeah, you didn't take a turn. It's just that... Okay, so let me talk about this book first. So Race Matters, it was written in 1993, and it's just sort of like the state of Black America. He talks about... um, He talks about just ideas that are destroying Black communities, how Black leadership is fractured and ineffectual, and, you know, on Black-Jewish relations and Black sexuality. It's very interesting. The reason why Trisha made that noise is that Dr. West, when Barack Obama was... Uh, when he won the primary and went on to become president, he was a very staunch critic of Obama. And in reading this book, I think I understand where he's coming from on that. I'm not saying I agree, but I mean, this book was written like 25 years ago and he lays out, you know, what he sees as the crisis in black leadership. And Obama does fit one of the three leadership archetypes that he suggests um, oh, interesting. Which ends up to be, which is not necessarily something he thinks the black community needs. So, but anyway, I it's a quick read. Again, like just like I made my media recommendations earlier in the episode, white people pick up this book and read it. It's about you too. 
African-American history is American history. And the fact that it's slotted off in its own category, I think is wild and inappropriate. So, so check it out. I like how there've been multiple segments where you've addressed the white audience. Like, you know that's what? The, that's the audience that you choose to address. All <laughs> You're never like, now to our Latino audience, I'd like to suggest. You know, the, the thing is, is that I feel like especially white people who listen to this particular podcast are sort of sympathetic to progressive causes and also may feel at a loss about what to do and where to start. And so I just want to give that, like, this is not complicated. You can pick up a book, you can watch a show. And you can just get informed and get comfortable with certain ideas. Because I think that eludes a lot of white people. A lot of white people are like, oh, I don't have black people in my lives. Like the whole thing, I can't access it. Oh, of course you can access it. Yeah, so it's the Motown. <laughs> <laughs> just tip your mailman twice as much as normal. <laughs> Oh, you too. So I want to plug our live episode. Wednesday, December 14th at 9.30, you will be able to listen in real time to us as we record it and participate in the cast itself. We'll get those details out to you on Facebook. And uh, yeah, you can get prepared. Just make sure you block that off in your calendar. Put all your kids to bed and (laughs) pour some wine. motherfuckers, put them to bed. Jesus Christ. Pour some wine <laughs> and get ready to get outrageous with us. Uh, that's our next episode, guys. So I'm excited. And in the meantime, please write a review on iTunes. Yeah, do that. So yeah, white so, people write reviews on iTunes. How about that? Put that in. Yeah, right hey, white people. <laughs> this is gonna be this is gonna be a podcast where I just tell white people what to do. My <laughs> fantasy has finally come true. <laughs> that, that should be a segment media recommendations and now what would each of you like to say to white people <laughs> oh no alright guys so uh, one last time outrageous live which is, actually it's just two days from now by the time this airs it's going to be two days from now so you're going to get a oh. double dose of outrageous so great get ready for that you two good night bye bye, bye. bye.